right. Is everybody here? One, two, three, four. Okay, five, six, so it's seven, Friday, eight, July 15th, 2018. Cry Havoc Theater Company has completed their final performance of Babel in Dallas's Arts District. All eight shows were sold out. Today, the actors, their parents, volunteers, and other members of the crew are in Hammond Hall, where the show is staged. They're breaking down the set, packing up, and cleaning. A lot is done already, so Cry Havoc's director, Mara Richards-Bim, pulled the cast aside for a final debrief. We made it. So... (laughs) So a word, a phrase, a parting something, who wants to go first? The company has gathered like this at the beginning and end of every rehearsal for several months. It's how the cast worked through the script, vented their feelings, and simply touched base. Sophomore performer Angie Hogue kicks off this last huddle. You know, like this show brought a lot of things into my life that wouldn't otherwise be there. Like, I don't know, like it's just really, really hard to believe that after seven months, this is it. Like, it's just gone. (laughs) Makes my heart really sad because y'all have been really, really good to me and I've made, you know, some some really, really good friendships. So, yeah. Skyline High School senior Sheldrick Pearl also thinks Babel was life-changing. His words are directed towards the company's leader. Mara, like, the first time you saw me act was, like, my first show ever doing. (laughs) And... It wasn't bad. I was great. Um, but <laughs> just ever since then, like, all of my acting opportunities, most of them came from you, and I'm just grateful. And you inspired me to want to do something like this for other kids like me, so thank you. Finally, Kara Lawson, a senior at Booker T. Washington High School and Cry Havoc's longest tenured actor. She reflects on the company's growth. Kara joined Cry Havoc in 2014. She's had a front row seat to the strides the company has made. The fact that we're here is crazy, and I've seen the company come so far, and I'm just really excited to be able to watch it take off even further. After lots of hugs and tears, Mara hands out parting gifts to the cast. The actors smile, they take photos, and they jump into cars with their parents. And that was it. It was over. I'm Hadi Mawagdi, reporting fellow for Guns in America. I'm Jerome Weeks, arts reporter for KERA in North Texas. And this is the final episode of Gunplay. It's been more than two years since Babel premiered. Since then, gun violence hasn't significantly decreased in the U.S., and gun sales are surging. Most of the students have gone off to college, and Cry Havoc has moved on to new subject matter. But still, we want to know what the cast and its director think about their journey into the world of guns and gun violence. And perhaps more importantly, we want to know if they think the venture was worth it. We start by talking to director Mara Richards-Bim. teenagers, you know, it is complicated, but in some ways they are so open and so willing to jump in that it makes some things a little bit easier. But for Babel, you know, I really had no idea how um, impactful those interviews were going to be, you know, when we traveled to other parts of the country and when we sat and listened to parents who had lost children to gun violence. It really had a lasting impact. And 
I don't think that I fully realized that headed into it. And so I didn't really um, prepare myself or the teens for what was about to come. So that's the one, that's the one thing I will say, but Battle was a pretty amazing experience, even with the complications. Mara, sometimes during the making of Babel, the actors seemed to really struggle to portray gun violence survivors and the people from their community as well. Did you ever worry about their emotional well-being? You know, hindsight being 2020, I think we would have prepared differently for that. We did a follow-up show last year. Our next piece actually dealt with immigration and we traveled to the border. And so for that one in preparation, I actually did bring in a therapist to work with us beforehand, knowing that we were going to hear stories that would potentially be traumatic. And then when we returned, that uh, we also had a therapist come in and talk with us as a group. And there were moments, yes, where I, you know, I just didn't expect that what we would hear would be, you know, as impactful on all of us as it was. You told us that you are a gun owner and your husband's a hunter. Um, Has this experience changed any of that? Several months. I mean, it was just a handful of months after Babel closed. My father, who had purchased an AR-15 for fun, gave it to my husband. And that was, that, that prompted some pretty intense conversations in our house. That gun is still in our house. It's locked up. I still have strong feelings about it. My husband is still a hunter. He does still actively go out and hunt. Obviously not with the AR-15. That's not a good hunting instrument. We do have a small child. So I will say, you know, we, one of the things I took from uh, working on Babel, we've, I've really um, insisted that we lock our guns up in a different kind of way than we had previously and ensure that they are, you know, truly locked up and unloaded and that sort of thing. But yeah, he still hunts. I still, I, you know, I haven't shot a gun since the day we went to the uh, gun range as a group for Babel. I'm just, you know, I, um, you know, there's still guns in our home and, and I'm not sure what to do about that. I guess that's an internal conflict I still struggle with. You did your best to speak to as many people about as many types of gun violence and gun collectorship and gun excitement as you could, you know. But at the end, I think you and I and maybe some of the students and even Jerome, you know, we talked about like there was something that was missing and maybe it was about police brutality or racial justice or racial injustice or neighborhoods where kids just get killed for living there. Do you feel like maybe you missed an opportunity? Well, I mean, yes and no. I feel like the topic was so broad. We should have at the beginning narrowed it down. And if we were going to focus on racial injustice and police brutality, we should have focused on that. You know, we didn't focus on the police brutality issue because we had just done shots fired, which we felt like focused on that. Um, And I also think that that um, having just come off of shots fired also sort of uh, colored how we, the path we went down. We did not focus on um, 
crimes that were racially motivated, we focused instead on school shootings. And that was a choice, you know? Um, I also think if we're, if we're being honest, I don't know that suicide should be lumped in to a play or a conversation that deals with gun violence, right? Like all of these are really separate issues and whether it was school shootings, whether it was racial, racial justice, whether it was suicides, but those are all sort of um, different, different points within the conversation on guns. It was also true that 2018 turned out to be the worst year in American history for school shootings. And it was something that um, we all commented on during the experience of Babel is that, you know, every two weeks there seemed to be another one. And um, I wonder if you talk about that. It seemed to drive the narrative because partly because the students themselves felt like they were becoming targets. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, and to the point of the question before, it really did drive the narrative. I mean, there were moments I had two or three different kids in the show call me at different points in the process in whispered tones because their school was on lockdown because somebody had entered the school with a gun. Um, you know, thankfully there was not, nothing, nothing occurred, right? But it was a really crazy year in terms of what students were experiencing. And one of the things that was most heartbreaking for me in that process, there was one day where we had interviews and I mean, they just talked about, I remember one talking about how she, she sits in this classroom and she had already sort of planned her escape if somebody came in and she would jump out this window on the second floor and she knew she'd probably break her leg and she'd have to break glass. I mean, they, they had to, they, these young people were thinking through these scenarios for themselves. To me, that was a particularly sad day in the process to realize that, and it wasn't just one, right? They all had sort of thought through, you know, if I'm in this class, this is how I'm going to get away. If I'm in this class, this is how I'm going to get away. In the midst of all of that, um, my daughter, who at the time was about two, was at a, um, a daycare and they did not tell me in advance, but I went one day and they said, oh yeah, we did our, our school drill shooting thing today. And my daughter was two. And it, it was, it, it really struck me in a, in a big way, like that, that this is where we're at in this country and that we're traumatizing young people of all ages, preparing them for an event that in that particular year when we did the show seemed to happen weekly. You have no idea what people are capable of, people you love and people you trust. You have no idea whether or not they have the capacity to do something outrageous and horrific. And so that's why everybody has to do these drills and everybody has to learn these procedures because sadly this is, this is something that happens now. And it's so unjust that you cannot have the, the simple right to go to school without fearing for your own life. Angie Hogue gave one of the standout performances in Babel. She portrayed Abby Clements, a teacher who hid in her classroom with her students as 26 people were murdered at Sandy Hook Elementary. Jerome spoke to Angie and fellow cast member Trinity Gordon 
And during their conversation, Trinity, who lost at least one classmate to gun violence every year she was in high school, Trinity told Jerome that rampant gun violence in her neighborhood had desensitized her towards things like active shooter drills. I would say in my school, going through that wasn't very foreign. It kind of felt normal. And it's kind of sad because I remember growing up in elementary and middle school, never having to do like shooter drills or anything. And it was until I moved to Texas, which I've been here for like eight years now, that's when it started. And I will say um, it was the day after Parkland. I remember the Parkland shooting. We had a fire drill and we had to go out the front door and cross the street. And I remember standing across the street, like just completely paranoid that someone was going to come like in a drive by on a car and just shoot us because there was just like students across the street, just like standing there. And I was thinking this is exactly what he did in Parkland. He pulled the fire alarm. He got them outside and he just like, you know, pounced on him. And so I remember that happening and being like so just like paranoid. And I, looking back on it, I just think about how sad that is as an 18-year-old to be like, someone's about to kill me right now. Trinity, when you began uh, the Babel Project in 2018, you said, you told us you really wanted to learn how to shoot a gun, how to handle one properly, but you also feared you were far too nervous to actually own one. Have your feelings changed? Um, no, actually, I think they've actually escalated, um, especially in times like this and having uh, my own apartment now in Austin, um, relatively alone. And so my birthday is in January and I'll be able to um, register for a handgun. But I feel like I'd have to get like all the proper training in order to like bring it into my home. Like I need to like do like months of just like training instead of like six hours. <laughs> but you're you're potentially interested in owning one? Yes. Yeah. Angie, you started by saying how terrified you were of mass shootings, like at a movie theater, and how you couldn't fathom why anyone would own a gun. But by the end, you said this entire experience made you, quote, more enlightened, more self-aware, and more able to see things from different angles, unquote. How do you feel today? I definitely feel that I understand more why a person might want to own a firearm, especially growing up as a young woman in America. And now that I've turned 18, I just, I felt so much more exposed for some reason. I felt, oh, well, in the eyes of the law, I am legal. And so in that case, I am more exposed and more vulnerable to the world. And if someone were to attack me and I had a gun, I would, I would be able to properly defend myself. At the same time, there are other things to use like pepper spray and, and brass knuckles or whatever. But like you said before, I, I couldn't even understand why a person would want one. Why do you need a gun? You know, this just, just makes everything so much more dangerous. But now I can definitely empathize with people who would want to keep a gun in their home to protect themselves and their family. Babel was an incredibly ambitious theater project. You went to Connecticut, D.C., you spoke with U.S. senators, with the survivors of gun violence, you joined the NRA. So in all of that, was there any one thing that most affected you, perhaps most influenced your thinking about guns, gun violence, gun rights? I think for me, I will never be able to get 
the image out of my head of Dylan Hockley in the arms of his teacher aide as the Sandy Hook shooter barged into the room. I think about that a lot, actually. I thought about it the other night for no reason. Nothing, nothing came up that reminded me of it. It just, just came into my mind. And I don't know why, but I think it's because when I put myself in his perspective, you know, being this first grader, and which I have been a first grader before, so I can relate to that, but then also being autistic, which I cannot relate to, this sensory overload he must have been experiencing and this fear and this lack of understanding about what was about to happen to him. I think that's what breaks my heart the most for all of these children is that they went to school that day and their parents sent them off to school having no idea that this would be the worst day of their lives. Um, It was definitely Nicole Hockley interviewing her. She was just so strong. And I just couldn't imagine, you know, my mom is my favorite person in the entire world. And so I couldn't imagine how this mother who, whose son was her entire world continues to go out and, and tell his stories. And I follow her um, on social media. And so sometimes I still see like, you know, pictures of her, pictures of him. And it's just crazy to me, like the strength of a month of a mother and kind of like the vulnerability as well at the same time and that like different contrast. Angie, uh, near opening night, you said you realized you'd more or less been dissociating, that you weren't really processing the traumas and angers of the people you interviewed. But then you said that final week, it, it all hit you. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I think that for me, definitely in the interview with Mark Barden, when he was talking about his son, Daniel, I remember a lot of people getting kind of emotional during that interview. And I was looking at him and I was looking at him holding this picture of his kids. And there was just this weird feeling that I had that I wasn't actually there, that, you know, I wasn't in my body, that I was watching something happening and I could tell that it was real, but then I knew that I knew that this was the man who had lost his son in this horrific infamous shooting that I'd heard about when I was 10 years old, but it didn't, it didn't click like that for me. My emotions didn't come out of me the way they normally do when I hear that kind of pain. But in that moment, it was, I, I think that maybe my brain kind of this, protective wall came up to say that if you fully process this, what's happening right now, you're not going to be able to handle it. I think what hit me the hardest was first watching Kara because like I said, with interviewing Mark Barden, I knew his story, but I I don't know him personally. I had never met him before that point. Whereas Kara is my friend and I know her and, and we'd seen her do this monologue plenty of times. Um, and she, you know, never really got emotional. She was able to do it and deliver the, the monologue and, and be, appear to be fine afterwards. Um, but what we did know is that Kara knew Grace, who was Sue's daughter and who took her own life. And 
when Kara was doing the monologue and she was finally really digging into that, that raw emotion and those, those feelings that were beneath the surface this entire time. While I, I don't want to speak for her, but I, I think you could argue that she in a way was dissociating before that, as I was in Mark Barden's interview where she wasn't allowing those, those deeper feelings to surface because she probably felt that she could not handle them. And so when she finally unlocked and unleashed those feelings, we just saw her break and she's, she's such a strong person. She's a very dry sense of humor. She's, she's just, you know, a kick-ass lady and nothing ever really seems to affect her the way it does other people. And I think this was just the first time that I saw her so vulnerable and it broke my heart. Like I, I sobbed. That feeling of closeness to a character or to a real person affected by gun violence was something several of the actors dealt with. But Carl Lawson says it's part of the job. Um, yeah, it was definitely difficult. I think, you know, we're a local theater company and we're telling national stories, but we're also telling local stories, which means that friends of people involved in the shows are there. People we portray come to these shows. So I think it's really important to honor where we're from and honor our communities that we're representing in these shows. Hadi spoke with Kara and Jemiah Parker to get their reflections on making Gunplay. He started out by asking Kara about that emotional moment in rehearsal and whether Mara should have cast her as Sue Lankar in the first place. I mean, so I was chosen to portray Grace's mother, Sue Lankar, uh, and that means that I had to recount the story of her mother finding her body. And this isn't very long after this event happened. So while I'm portraying Sue Longcar, I'm also going through my own grieving process. And I think when that day happened, um, I was saying the monologue, I was going to the story, and I think it almost made me process my own emotions and it made me process that experience for myself. And I think that was something that had to happen uh, in order for me to tell that story honestly. Jemiah, you also portrayed a woman who suffered tremendous loss. Her name was Deandra Yates Dykus, and unfortunately, we were unable to include her story in the podcast. But basically, Deandra's 13-year-old son, Dre, asked his mom to go to a birthday party. And sadly, he was shot at that party and left paralyzed. What do you remember about that role? I remember in rehearsal one day when I was saying the monologue, Jordan started crying. And I thought, I don't know why I thought I did something wrong. And so I stopped saying my monologue and I was like, hey, are you okay? And he's like... I don't know, man. I was just hearing you say it the way that she delivering that those lines and like hearing his story. I, it made him bust into tears. And just being able to portray her story and in a sense her son's story that way 
to bring people to their knees or to tears with that emotion, that was the moment that I really realized we're doing something that can change America and even the world. Well, I want to talk about another uh, experience full of human moments, and, and that was at the NRA convention. Jemiah, you know, before we attended the meeting, you seemed really open to talking with members, and you said something like, maybe the members aren't the same as the NRA leadership. But then after the convention, you said you were never more aware of being black than you were at the NRA meeting. Do you remember why? Yeah, I still remember to this very day. Um, I I probably would say that I was the one that was leaning more towards a person like keeping a firearm. I was more pro-gun than most people in our theater troupe. So I thought, hey, they're not going to really have a problem with me because... Yeah, I think everybody is entitled to have their gun if they're a responsible, law-abiding citizen. Then yeah, you know. So I thought I was I wasn't going to have an issue with it. I didn't think. Well, I had heard that the NRA was racist, but we had been prone to like opening ourselves up all this time and keeping an open mind and everything. So I was more than open to experience that. But um, when I got there, I first of all just sea of white so that freaked me out a little bit I've never been in a place where it was mostly white faces and they didn't seem all that approachable but I was like you know what let me just go and talk about it so I I was I think Angie interviewed the first person and she was she was black and so she looked at me in my eyes and we started switching off with interviews and every person who I interviewed who was white, they would not look at me in my face. They would completely turn in Angie's direction. So I was like, maybe I'm not asking enough questions. So I would throw out some questions just to see if they would look at me and they would turn and they would direct their responses to Angie as if they were trying to bring Angie over to their side and that's the moment I, I, I was like, well, why are you looking at her and not at me? We're both female, so it can't be a female thing. And I mean, just it was just at that point where I felt because the color of my skin, they would not look at me. They felt like we could not relate on this subject. And it was not a feeling I enjoyed, you know? I just, <laughs> I don't like being the assumption that was with it. And, you know, it, um, it pissed me off. It pissed me off. And it still kind of pisses me off. You know, the NRA convention was interesting for you as well, Cara. You know, when you first got there, um, that very first morning, you told me, I'm pretty sure I just heard someone walk by and say that Trump was their savior. And, you know, I think that some of the white cast members kind of saw things like what Jemiah described and, you felt uncomfortable around that, you know, and um, some of the female actors complained about mansplaining. The NRA males would try to recruit them while also being condescending. Did you encounter that? I did. I also, I was the first person to get there kind of before the rest of the group. And I mean, 
if, if a hall was crowded, people, men would move aside for me. If I was going through any doorway, every man would stop to let me through. It really felt like I was kind of going back in time 40 years. And I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't really have that kind of faith in uh, the people at the NRA to begin with. Whenever I had been to protests in the past, it seemed like the only people really showing up with guns for the most part were white male people. I think also at the time, obviously I had a friend who used a gun to commit suicide. I think there was part of me that, that didn't want to understand any of it and didn't accept people who wanted to have guns, honestly, at the time. That's how I felt. Um, so I, I don't, I, I think I wanted to appear open-minded, but I think I definitely had my reservations about the people there from the get-go. We talked about so many different types of shootings and gun enthusiasts and all sorts of gun-related things in, in Babel. And even myself as a journalist learned so much from those experiences. But at the end of Babel, um, one of the things people kind of felt like was that maybe racial justice, police brutality, maybe wasn't well enough explored in, in Babel. And I wonder if you all feel like maybe you missed an opportunity there. I think the issue with Babel is that gun issues and everything surrounding that was a much, much bigger topic that I think we originally anticipated. And there's no way to thoroughly or do justice to all of those subsets of issues within an hour, two hours. Um, I think the media was really heavily focused on school shootings back then. And I think that's probably what led to us focusing a bit more on that, which maybe we shouldn't have. I mean, honestly, I think, I think it's, it's right to do a show on gun issues for racial justice, for police brutality, for school shootings. It's just hard to do um, justice to those issues all at once. Yeah, no. So I do think we missed the mark as far as talking about gun issues in relation to police brutality and its effect on the Black community. I do think... I do agree with Cara when she says it was a lot bigger than we initially thought. We did not think it was nearly as big an issue back then. And now we know that so many layers and things are wrapped up in that. So, yeah, but I do think racial injustice and police brutality, it is a group of its own. So I feel if Mara was going to do it, she would have to do a completely new show. Towards the end of the Babel production, Trinity told Hottie she hoped the play did something. Two years later, we asked her and the others, what did Babel do, if anything? You know, I think it made me think about guns and my relationship to them and talking about them, especially in relation to young people and, and school shootings. I think it, it had an impact on me. You know, I will say we still get 
phone calls and emails and things about Babel and about the play. So I guess that it did generate some um, conversations and it continues to generate conversations. I remember oftentimes during the talkbacks getting questions from middle-aged people uh, being like, so, so you guys are, are the young generation, what are you guys going to do? Which annoyed me to no end because they're sitting there fully capable, fully mobile. It's like, what are you going to do? You just watch this, what are you going to do? You're still, you're still a part of this world. I kind of think when we did the show, it was already too late. Um, by then, the issue was so big that the effect that we did have was a good start, but it it's already mutated into something else. It's like it was first school shooters. Now we just now it's not just at schools. Anybody could be busting shots anywhere at any time. I think it allowed me to realize that we take a lot of things for granted and we don't know how many people are affected by gun violence because i think we all are it didn't stop shootings it didn't stop gun violence obviously but i think what Babel did at the very least it amplified the voices of the people in our story and i think that what it did for me was it introduced me to these people who it's the craziest thing to me that there are people I have grieved for that I have never even met. I think we really did give some life back into these people that had lost their lives and we, we made the world remember them and we forced people to think about things that aren't easy to think about and I think that's really valuable. Gunplay was created and hosted by Hadi Mawagdi and Jerome Weeks. AC Valdez was our editor. Micaela Rodriguez is our producer. Thanks to Chris Anderson, Stephen Becker, Justin Bowers, Eric Bright, Dominique Davis, Gabrielle Jones, Megan Kilgore, Alan Nelson, Lauren Menke, Anita Moti, Elizabeth Mayong, Jeff Penfield, and Christy Robinson. Ann Bothwell is KERA's Vice President of Arts. Thanks to Delta Spirit for letting us use their song Hold My End Up as our theme, and Joe Cazera provided additional music. Special thanks to the members of Cry Havoc Theater Company. Gunplay is a production of KERA and Guns in America. Guns in America is supported by a grant from the Candida Fund, a foundation that invests in transformative leaders and ideas, empowering communities to enhance equity, vibrancy, resourcefulness, and resilience.